You're now listening to Sanity at the Movies, the Raiders Pictures Edition. I call it that, of course, because if you watch any documentary or anything with Steven Spielberg, he will say, the Raiders Pictures. We made the Raiders Pictures, which I think is adorable because the rest of us call them the Indiana Jones movies or Chronicles or whatever it is we call them. But he loves that Raiders of the Lost Ark and he calls them pictures, which is an old timey thing that I always enjoy when anyone says, we went to the pictures. That's just something that our society has basically lost. Your thoughts, Jake Menzel, pastor who's a master of archaeology. (laughs) I'm not sad that we lost that artifact. I don't feel special nostalgia for it. You don't feel any special nostalgia for going to the pictures or seeing the the latest Walt Disney picture or not really. The new Scorsese picture? Not really. I do. But good for, good for you. Yeah, we can we can be different. Yeah. So, we are here. We should explain to people what we were doing. We actually just achieved Patreon status of a sort that allows us to do this. Yeah, we hit our uh our, our first, first goal. First goal, yeah. All our goals are structured around uh, something we're calling the superhero's journey, which is our attempt to go through the evolution of the modern hero and the modern hero's journey and examine uh, the way that that has changed over the past 30, 40, 50, mm-hmm. 60 years. Because we're going back to the 70s. so And, and even further back in, in this week's episode, especially, it, but but see what that says about us and uh, what the movies have been teaching us about what a hero is and what's heroic and um, yeah, and whatever society puts up on a pedestal, you can obviously tell a lot about us. Oh, that's what they think a hero is. Well, yeah. So it's you know on the one hand it reflects us, and on the other hand it's it's uh, instructive and it is instructing us. And so uh, we're going to examine that, and there's a whole lot to mine about that, but. We're starting with Indiana Jones. We're starting with Indiana Jones. And why are we starting with Indiana Jones? Well, number one, it was a really good first Patreon goal. Yeah. I'm not going to pretend like that's not a factor in the decision here. Yeah. People love Indiana Jones. But that, so it's exciting. We don't, we're not just in it for the money, though. Yeah. So, okay. We're calling it the superhero's journey. And we want to talk about the superhero. Mm-hmm. So, all of the stuff that we talk about, with the exception of Indiana Jones, is superhero stuff. Right. But we needed a place to start and a place to provide context for our superheroes. Kind of an anchor point for just what is, we're going to see different types and variations. So what is just like the prototypical kind of American Yeah, hero? so the um, the typical American anti-hero mm-hmm. is the context. And uh, that goes all the way back to the 19th century dime store novels and things like that. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Yeah, we'll talk about that today. And we see that basically being uh, developed in the context of Westerns, mm-hmm. especially when we hit the big screen. Absolutely. Um, so John Wayne, Clint Eastwood. And we could have spent time and done you know, the line from Roy Rogers to John Wayne to Clint Eastwood if we wanted to. Yeah, and maybe we'll double back someday or do some stuff behind the Yeah, and I think that, I think that we probably should. And I know we'll end up talking about all of these guys and more in this episode, but Indiana Jones really represents a culmination, if yeah, you will. He he is like the the culmination, the 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 quintessential embodiment of all of these American 
anti-hero types. Right. If if the British, into one if person. every British hero kind of led to James Bond, let's say, a certain type of It doesn't of matter character. if it's Jesse James, if it's Wyatt Earp, it doesn't matter if it's John Wayne or Roy Rogers. Or Humphrey Bogart or, from or the, yeah. Treasure of the Sierra Madre or Casablanca or whatever. Yeah, exactly. I was, yep, we're on the same page with this. It is all leading to Han Solo, I mean, Indiana yeah. Jones. I mean, Dr. Richard Kimball. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that's just all the top of my head. That was, that's just another Harrison Ford character. I don't know whether he he belongs in the lineage or not, folks. Probably not. Fugitives, really good movie though. Yeah, it is a great movie. Yeah, so Indiana Jones allows us to talk about something really fun, exciting, and cool, and pulpy, mm-hmm. and everybody in the lineage of Indiana Jones coming up to up to Indiana Jones, and really spend a lot of time talking about just the modern. American anti-hero because we're going to see in all of these movies whether even whether we're dealing with a straight arrow like Superman or somebody like Batman or somebody who when we get to the more world weary types of the Marvel Cinematic Universe Mm -hmm. down the line all of them come in a context shaped by these anti-heroes yeah I mean there's a little like if you're going to talk about vampire if we were if we were doing a series on vampires and we were gonna you know do our episode on interview with the vampire or twilight like you gotta start with dracula like who's just somebody who's the archetype the yeah somebody who just embodies all those qualities and yeah and well what dracula did was actually take a whole bunch of other ideas about vampires whatever else is out there and combine it into one Really, really iconic, potent, iconic, yeah. Character named Dracula. Mm-hmm. There's an awesome name. Yeah, it is. You know who else has an awesome name? Indiana Smith. <laughs> well, they were going to call him that. They were going to call him that. Indiana Jones, way cooler than Indiana Smith. Yeah. One of those questions of history. If he had been called Indiana Smith, would we be like, Indiana Jones? That sounds weird. I'm glad they went with Smith. Whatever. And so you, you see all of these things pulled together in Indiana Jones. Mm-hmm. And He's got the fedora. He's got the silhouette with the sunset. They're going to play with all these types. He's going to look like the cowboy. He's going to ride a white horse. Mm -hmm. For crying out loud. For crying out loud. And fight the devil. I mean, he's fighting Hitler. Yes. And so... um, Hey, what's the embodiment of all evil? Oh, it's Hitler. Yeah, of course. You know, I mean, like, it doesn't doesn't get much more archetypical than that. And so he's going to get to 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 play with, you know, Westerns and he's going to get to play with World War II stuff. And because we don't have to make him a cowboy, because we can make him an archaeologist, um, we can make him a world traveler. We can put, pick him up and drop him into any number of different... We can put him in the jungle. He can be a lot more cosmopolitan than, say, John Wayne. He can, he can find himself in different environments and situations. Yeah, make him a more pliable hero than yeah, he, a cowboy, yeah, an actual he, cowboy cowboy. He's going to have to don his his tweed and go teach. And, mm-hmm. and uh, then put on his white suit to hit the- Casino. The Obi-Wan bar or whatever it's yeah. called at the Temple of Doom. Like, Yep, he's got got that, needs that white tux. He's got to be able to jump in and out of any number of identities. Put mm-hmm. on his turban and blend in with the, the workers down in Cairo. Yep. Yeah, he's just punch out a Nazi and fit awkwardly into his. Oh man, what, what a great moment! What huh? a great moment! Well, what a great movie! What a great movie with that's like what a great movie where that moment doesn't even rate among its top fifty moments. Like, yeah, that's just a throwaway. It is probably 
all things considered, my favorite movie. Well, before we get into context, uh, the larger context and trace the hero's journey to Indiana Jones, which is what we're going to do today in this episode, we should talk about that. We should talk about the feelings that we bring to Indiana Jones. This was the first, I remember watching Last Crusade and Raiders. We weren't allowed to watch Temple as kids because it was too mm-hmm. too graphically games. violent. It certainly did have the mystique of that, though. Like, I remember on the playground, like, I can picture the slide, I can picture the playground, and I can picture the kid saying, have you heard about what happens in Temple of Doom? The guy's heart gets ripped out. It's cool. Hmm. Like, you have to see that one. Oh, well, I'm only allowed to watch the other two, you know. <laughs> yeah. Last Crusade and Raiders of the Lost Ark, I mean, I was just a dumb kid. So I think at the at the time, particularly Last Crusade, actually, because it's such a kid-friendly, fun yeah. movie. Those were the most ex- exciting movies that I'd ever seen. Like, Last Crusade, yeah. The Indiana Jones movies, the Back to the Future movies. Mm-hmm. And then like Goonies and Top Gun. Yeah, and for me, the Star Wars, the original Star Wars trilogy. Was, and the Star Wars was in there, but not special for me. Like these were. Mm-hmm. But yeah, 100%. Those were the movies that really shaped and yeah, defined I mean, my childhood. Yeah. Uh, outside of the Disney canon. Yeah. It was, which what, is just a separate question. Yeah. I mean, the hierarchy for me would have been like, if you're a little kid, you know, if you're under six, then you then your favorite movies probably are Disney movies. But, you know, once you get to be seven, eight, nine, ten, then of course it's Star Wars and Star Wars is your entry point into Indiana Jones, which is who who is obviously the coolest of them all the darkest the most scary and adult feeling but also the most fun yeah yeah i mean indiana jones was just i mean i probably probably the fact that we're doing this podcast at all the fact that i love movies the fact that i've invested so much of my ill-gotten youth in movies was chasing the high of indiana jones and never really getting it what can live up to that what lives up to that I, I think in the last decade, Mad Max Fury Road probably came kind of close for me. Yeah, but the problem with Mad Max Fury Road is you don't have a hero that you can identify with on yeah. the level of indie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If Mad Max had an actual likable protagonist, I mean, I like Furiosa okay as far as feminist yeah, I'm not saying that go. It, but it's bad. It just the, the real comparison point, though, is the action. If you could take your affinity for, say, Tony Stark, which took... 10 years and a jillion movies to develop mm-hmm. and place him in a such a well-constructed action Rube Goldberg machine mm-hmm. as Mad Max Fury Road. Then you'd have... Then you'd have something approximating Raiders of the Lost Ark. But you'd also need to add some real mystique to it because that's the third element yeah, the in Raiders that you're not the... going to get mm-hmm. is that... That vibe that you get when you get down into the well of souls, and John Williams pulls an ace out of his sleeve. Well, I mean, they're, they're, I mean, it's a religious feeling. There's no other right. w- word for it. Raiders of the Lost Ark manages to play with religious iconography, and so does Last Crusade. Real potent religious iconography in a way that feels. Now, I don't want to overstate my case here. I think you can make a pretty good argument that you shouldn't do what they did. Um, and we actually talked about that in our other Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of proto review that we did on the Sound of Sanity show before it had, the Amoeba had split uh, yeah. that you can listen to. But what they do does at least acknowledge the potency of those things in a way that feels somewhat respectful, that feels this is this is serious stuff. This is serious. This is heavy. This is otherly. This is not the kind of religious stuff that you 
handle lightly. And the mistake of the Nazis is that they're going to handle it lightly and it's heavy. Yeah. And and they are going to pay. And it's just, I don't know. It does religion better than say the shack better than say God is not dead better than, I mean, we have some genuine power here, whether I like it or not. You can't argue that it doesn't give these movies some of their potency. Their potency. Yeah. And one of the problems with the two bastard children of the Indiana Jones franchise, the Temple of Doom and the fourth Kingdom one. Kingdom of the Crystal Kingdom of the Skull. Crystal Skull is their MacGuffins just... They can't, they they can't, can't bear it. the weight of the Grail or the Ark. Yeah. I mean, the Holy Grail is like literally the Holy Grail is the Holy Grail of... Of Holy, ra- of, of, of Holy Grails. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's great. <laughs> and The Lost Ark. Oh, man. What a perfect conceit for a movie. It's pretty cool. Uh, I guess we'll talk about it some more when we actually do our long-form review of Raiders of the Lost Ark. But, man, it really makes you understand the potency of a good MacGuffin, J.J. Abrams. You can't just be like, well, it's the thing. It's the Wayfinder. We need it. It's really important. It's a glow stick in the middle of a city. No, give it some lore that actually makes it feel important. Yeah. And it can really dial your movie up. Yeah. And, you know, the smart thing about, hey, if you've got an archaeologist, you can play with lore that's real. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, it's sort of, in some ways, in an inverse way, what J.K. Rowling did. She didn't have to invent a bunch of lore. Yeah. She could just co-op the occult. Yeah, exactly. Right. And they managed to just co-op real religion. I mean, yeah, for lack of a better word. And again, I'm sure we'll talk more about... Notwithstanding some serious details. Some, some, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't actually believe that there was a Holy Grail. That's not what I mean. But the way that they construct it, the idea of the penitent man shall pass, the idea of mm-hmm. Christ was a humble carpenter, so if there was a grail, it would look like this. And the and just the idea of you don't mess with this stuff. Yeah. Um, you will die. Yeah. All has real power to it and real meaning to it. I mean, it really is lightning in a bottle. Like I watch so many action movies and I'm just like, and I, and I feel the pain of the filmmakers because it's like, you're going to have big action scene after big action scene. And then you have to have a third act with a climax. And guess what your third act with your climax is going to be? It's going to be in another action scene. But if you're a great action movie, you've already done your great action scene at the beginning. And then you've done your great action scene somewhere about ter- two thirds of the way th- through and then you're going to do another one like mm-hmm. Raiders of the Lost Ark and Last Crusade solved that problem beautifully by not actually having an action, an action scene. scene but having something else a cathartic horror judgment scene. yeah a cathartic horror <laughs> judgment scene which puts all the action in a context that makes it feel much more special than it would if Indiana Jones just had to have a sword fight with Hitler at the end or something like that if only you know he could bust you know cut through the rope bridge and mm-hmm. yeah well that's that's the counter example and so i guess we're talking about our feelings and what's coming out is that we both really love raiders of the lost dark we have mixed feelings about temple of doom i think temple of doom is going to be really fun to talk about it's it's going to be fun to talk about but I would, I would argue it's the last time that those guys actually really wanted to make an indiana jones movie i think that will be my argument last crusade i think george lucas always wants to make indiana jones movies he did the young indiana jones chronicles george lucas just loves coming up with crazy ideas for stuff Steven Spielberg, I think, burned his interest out with... With Crusade. With, well, I think with Temple of Doom... I know he, that's what you're going to... But Crusade's okay, a... Gr- okay, we'll have to talk about it. Yeah. We'll have to talk it through. To Crusade, to my mind, we, we, we will talk about it. My, my, my hot take, I think, and maybe you'll be able to argue me out of this if you want to, but I think Crusade is just the work of 
a master filmmaker who still has enough interest to make it really sing and who found a nice father-son story to tell that really interested him kind of on the margins. Whereas by the time you get to King Game of the Christmas Crystal Skull, it's clear that Spielberg has nothing more to say about this genre or about any of this stuff. And Yeah, he doesn't I, care. I think he's good natured about it. I think he'd like to do it and do it for the fans and do it for the people who love him and Indiana Jones. And I don't think he's being cynical, but I just don't think he he still wants to make those kinds of movies, and that's fine. He can do whatever he wants. He's Steven Spielberg crying out loud. If he hasn't given us enough entertainment. Where where is uh if the if you age up Indiana Jones to Harrison Ford's Ford's age, where does this next where in time is this next movie set? So according to this thing on Google, like Wikipedia, I guess Indiana Jones was born July first, eighteen ninety nine. So so if, we're in the seventies. So yeah, we would actually be in the seventies. What a terrible time to have to set an Indiana Jones movie. No, you need to age him up even more and at least get to the 80s but i was wishing that we could have it in the 90s that's interesting the reason is because when these movies came out they were playing with their own childhood nostalgia Mm -hmm. they were playing with their own nostalgia for these westerns and for these serial movies serial movies these b adventures these pulp things and they were just like what if we had all of those things that we thought were fun Mm -hmm. but with our big budgets because we're awesome. Yeah. Okay, well, you've got to get to an era where people feel some nostalgia. Yep. 80s is played out at this point. Yeah, like, and so if we could jump to the 90s and do what, X-Files? Or like, what would have been like the sci-fi? Yeah, I mean, X-Files was big. You you would be in a sci-fi-ish kind of era then. The problem is the snake's already eating its own tail by the 90s. So actually yeah. the 90s is just redoing the 50s with alien invasion and yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, men in black. The 80s actually is the era that people now, thanks to Amblin Entertainment, associate with mystical kind of Lovecraftian, you know, stranger, the hashtag stranger things. Yeah. So it would be easiest to play on the nostalgia that people have for the 80s. If you're, if you wanted to find the, the last era where people kind of associate the supernatural with that era. But I don't know. I don't know what they need to do. The six, it's hard to imagine Indiana Jones in the sixties. You know what they really need to do? I think the technology is there. They just need to make a Indiana Jones back when Harrison Ford was in his forties movie. Use a body double and use the aging technology. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I'm not being an ageist here, but the things that make Indiana Jones fun are not the things that people in their eighties, no matter how well-preserved can do we don't need to see a story about how moving it is to see indiana jones get old and have to make his peace with like that's just not what indiana jones is about he's about having fun and going on adventures and stuff like that (sighs) i don't know what they're gonna do i don't know whether they're gonna do as much as they keep talking about it harrison ford really is 77 and he really does look like an old man at this point and i mean he looked pretty stooped and aged in that cameo that he did for rise of skywalker like i it's hard for me to imagine that he just guy did an action film though he just did call of the wild or something like that yeah he was in call of the wild but yeah and i don't know how much action is in that or not but yeah i mean if anybody can do it it's harrison ford i don't know we'll be here to talk about it when it happens yep lord willing but today is not today is day. not that day 
All right, so I am now going to trace the lineage of the All-American Hero from the beginning of time. Well, not time, but the beginning of American Heroes heroes, all the way to Indiana Jones. Starting with John Smith and Pocahontas. And now you know why we've... Yeah, exactly. That's why we did Pocahontas. It all started with Mel Gibson. So many great things did. (laughs) (laughs) He freed Scotland. He did all kinds of great stuff, that guy. The first thing that I want to do is I want to just very quickly make the case that not every culture's heroes are the same. We're talking about an American hero. And so it feels like it might be nice to just make the point that different cultures have different heroes. It doesn't go without saying. And the easiest... And maybe one of the most important things to say about this is, you know, a point that you've probably heard or intuited or seen other people say many, many times, we don't see a sacrificial hero Mm -hmm. in the world until Christendom, right? until after Jesus comes Mm -hmm. and is the sacrificial lamb who saves the world through his... through through his death and resurrection. We see conquerors like Achilles and we see tricksters like Odysseus. And that's basically, that's basically it, right? (laughs) But then, so the West is reshaped by Christendom and a a new understanding of what an awesome hero is. So you have heroes, I mean, where where to even start? I mean, we don't have time or space here to cover. To go all the way back. To go all the way back. But let me just give one example of one culture and the type of heroes that I think they tend to uh, produce. And that is one that's very close to our culture, British culture. Mm -hmm. British culture tends to produce heroes who are, now now you're going to be able to think of lots of exceptions to this rule. It's it's not a hard and fast rule. I'm just making some general observations here. So take them for what they're worth. But if you think about the iconic British heroes, if you Google iconic British fictional heroes, you are going to get people who one way or another work within an institution. They're not as individualized as American heroes. And so you even think about somebody like Robin Hood, the famous Prince of Thieves, right? He's an outlaw. But Robin Hood in all of his original versions was working actively. He was a nobleman. You know, he was part of the ruling class and he was working actively to get Richard back in power. Like Robin Hood's not one of the 99%. He's one of the 1%. Like, yeah. he's an aristocrat. Yep. Yeah, he gets to kind of have his cake and eat it too. He gets to hang out with his merry men and act like an outlaw. But ultimately, the story culminates with justice and order being restored and Robin Hood being a happy part of that. I think what, I, what I'd almost like to generalize about a British hero is that he is kind of like outsider-insider. Like, he's someone that has to exist within an institution but also has to make have some space. Have something of an outsider's perspective. Yeah, have something of an outsider. So that would be Robin Hood. You think about Sir Lancelot, you know, if mm-hmm. you want to stick with that era. He's somebody who, he is the great knight. He is the great example of chivalry. He's also someone who can't actually quite make his peace with Camelot. He's going to sleep with Queen Guinevere. He's going to get in all kind of trouble. He's going to almost bring down the kingdom, earn yep. King Arthur's wrath. But then when Mordred comes after king arthur lancelot's right there he's a team player he's Mm. not you know what we're going to get to one of these individualized american anti-heroes who actually is in it to do his own thing he's flawed he's compromised he's an outsider he can't quite make his peace with camelot but ultimately 
he works for Camelot. Sherlock Holmes, same thing, especially in the original Doyle. Doyle stories. Like Sherlock Holmes is just happy to serve the crown, to serve people. He's not quite part of society. He's above it. But he's not actually the Benedict Cumberbatch version where he's anti, he's completely antisocial, completely a jerk, completely, you know, I think people, you know, so the, the American. They like to Americanize him. Yeah, the American anti-hero has basically won in popular consciousness. So now every hero has to be somebody, like Sherlock Holmes is going to sneer at Lestrade, like the police could never get anything right. The original Sherlock Holmes doesn't sneer at Lestrade. He just happens to be. Better than him. Better than him. <laughs> <laughs> Robert Downey Jr. sneers at Lestrade. Benedict Cumberbatch sneers at Lestrade, like these guys actively fight against the institution in a way, a very American kind of a way. The the real Sherlock Holmes doesn't do that. Quintessential 20th century British hero is James Bond, and he's kind of got the same dynamic again. He's a, he's a company man. He works for the British government. You know, you watch The Spy Who Loves Me, and he goes sailing off the cliff, and then the parachute opens up, and it's got the, the British, British flag, flag on yeah. it and it's a big applause moment like James Bond has an uneasy you know he's rebellious he's sexually depraved he has an uneasy relationship with his superiors he's always making fun of Q and getting reprimanded by M but ultimately James Bond is on our team he's one of the elites he's one of the people that gets things done Daniel Craig has again you know every time Daniel Craig makes another James Bond movie James Bond goes off the reservation he can't make his peace with being on the team. The real James Bond, as much of a thug and a sexual deviant as he was, could always make his peace with working for the crown. The crown. Yeah. So you have these British heroes. that They're all actually upper crust. Mm-hmm. They're all elite. They're all... You can trace the, you can trace the American anti-hero to this guy mm-hmm. because he is sort of standing... He, He's within the system, but he's he's given the side eye to the right. system. Yeah. Right? And he's winking and... And that's know. a lot of the fun of the old James Bond is like, yeah, I work for you, but really I just like sleeping around and shooting who I want. And- Thank you for giving me a license <laughs> to do this. Yeah, exactly. Because you give me a license to do this, I will honor you. You got my back, I got yours. But also, when Britain had the Olympics... The opening of the Olympics had James Bond, as played by Daniel Craig, escort the queen. Like, it was part of the ceremony. Yeah. James Bond is, even in today's day and age, a symbol of British might, British power. I mean, you can you can look up all kinds of dumb, uh, you know, anti-colonialist papers and academic stuff about how awful James Bond is. And it's because they rightly see that he is associated with with that class. Uh, even though he's uneasy with it. And that's a quality we're going to talk about. The last one that I thought of, I mean, if you type in British heroes, British fictional heroes, you're going to get Harry Potter. There again, that's in the British schoolboy tradition, which there were a lot of novels written like that in the early 20th century. And those novels are all about how great it is to go to school, find your place. And there's a little bit of a British Horatio Alger kind of thing. You come from nothing, but you're always striving to become part of the ruling class and you're always happy to do it at the end and yeah harry's he's got a weird insider outsider thing going where he's partially outside of things but also he ultimately exists to keep the establishment to keep hogwarts going to go and work as an horror it doesn't matter how many things are corrupt or need to be stood against and there are plenty of them ultimately harry's a team player yeah 
And so if you think about it in that sense, just in terms of the British mentality and mm-hmm. the American mentality, well, the Brits always, you know, looked askance at the crown and at everything mm-hmm. else and, you know, but felt they're going to play within the system at a certain point. Like right? it's our privilege to look askance to the crown because we also bow to it and serve it and protect it and it protects us. Like, And at some point, these... uh Dirty Americans decided, eh, well. <laughs> Enough with that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that is so. You're outsiders on the inside and we'll just be outsider outsiders. Right. And that is so fundamental to the American character. And obviously that's where I'm going with this. Americans are not quasi insider outsiders. They're just outsiders a lot of the time. Or if they're insiders, they're fundamentally outsiders. You know, like John Wayne can get his act together enough to save the girl from being raped by the Indians or whatever in the searchers. But then he's not promoted to have institutional weight or authority or anything like that. He doesn't become part of the crowd, part of the system. He stands outside it. And it's one of the most potent and poignant moments in America, in American cinema. I mean, it really is a defining moment in the searchers. Like this guy is fundamentally at the end of the day, while he might outside the house, he's outside the house. He might serve the interests of the house and of domestic life and of happiness and of society. He's not part of it. He's not part of it. He's not able to be because he's a rebel and he's an individual. And that's, that is the very things that make him the hero that we need are the things that exclude him from partaking in the things that he's fighting to save and protect. Right. We'll trace that lineage a little bit more in a minute. The only thing I was really doing with the British was saying like, hey, here's a different culture and it's pretty similar to ours, but it's a little different. And you could talk about Japanese culture or China, like the kind of people that they make heroes, completely different, right? But let's actually move forward for a moment and look at what constitutes an American hero a little bit more, and then we'll go back and we'll kind of trace how we got there. But I want to take you, Jake, to the 1930s when a bunch of quintessential and iconic and influential American heroes were born. So you've got Philip Marlowe in 1933, Raymond Chandler's famous private Mm -hmm. eye detective. You've got Superman. Action Comics number one comes out in 1938. You've got John Wayne playing the Ringo Kid and Stagecoach, the kind of the movie that kind of def- made him a star and defined his persona. That's 1939. Same year, Detective Comics 27 comes out with Batman, March 1939. And then we'll go into the 40s. You've got Casablanca, 1942, still kind of a, a relic of mm-hmm. the 1930s. Detective Comics, by the way, for people who don't know. Detective Comics DC? DC. Yeah, exactly. And it was just called Detective Comics and it wasn't specifically about Batman, but then everybody was like, hey, we kind of like this Batman character. Maybe you should make him the guy and then mm-hmm. we'll give you more money. And they did, yep. which was probably a smart move. So you could argue that this is like, this era is the flowering of, of all these archetypes, right? And, and what you have here, I think, like what's different about all these guys in their way is if British people are outsidery insiders you know they might be outsidery but ultimately they're insiders now we're looking at insidery outsiders 
Yeah. These people exist outside the system. They might serve it. They might be inside it enough. They might have good contacts on the inside. Yeah. But Philip Marlowe, he's not a cop. And, and all the guys in the pulp novels of that time weren't. They, I mean, some of them were, but the ones that have really succeeded and thrived and that we remember were ones like Philip Marlowe or like Sam Spade and the Maltese Falcon or th- these guys who just did their own thing because the system was fundamentally broken and corrupt. And the only way that a good man could get anything done is by just doing his own thing. Like Philip Marlowe would love to be a cop, I think. Like Chandler makes him very Christ-like, especially in the later novels. Like he he wants to save people. He wants to do the right thing, but he can't because the system is just bad. It's just broken. And so he has to exist outside of it. And it's painful. A Superman, very positive spin on the same kind of thing. Like mm-hmm. he is the outsider of all outsiders. He's a space alien. And he chooses to ally himself with truth, justice, in and the, the American, American way. way. We're always going to play with the the tension of the fact that he is in fact just doing his own thing. I mean, he's, he's Superman. He's, it's in his name. Like he's beyond us. He wasn't elected to that position in some kind of a democratic process. He just showed up one day and said, Hey, guess what? I'm Superman. You watch Stagecoach with John Wayne. He plays a criminal outlaw character who is on the run out to serve his own interests. And it ends up being the noble guy. You know, it's got the classic moment where he has a chance to escape custody. And then, you know, the Indians are attacking and the woman is threatened and he decides to go back. But he's not a member of the system. Uh, And then, of course, Batman. I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't have to bore everyone by explaining who Batman is or how he exists outside of the (laughs) system. (laughs) The quintessential vigilante. Um, And then Rick Blaine in Casablanca, same thing. Like, he might join the resistance at the end, but he can't ever go back to America. We don't know what happened. like to think that he killed a man. It's the romantic in me. But he is forever outside. Mm -hmm. That's who he is. He's not getting back in. The guy that is the inside, the guy that the British story would be about would be the freedom fighter guy who's just the freedom fighter guy. Yeah. He's awesome. Well, so, I mean, and and that's another way to sort of delineate this is that at the end of the day, the American outsider is after the fight, he's going to wipe blood from his face and dust the dust off his jacket. The, our British hero might, he'll be, he'll be annoyed if he got a little bit of uh, dirt on his cuff. Yeah. You know, he's clean. I mean, it really is the difference. I mean, we're going to be, we're, we're getting to Indiana Jones, but think about the difference between Indiana Jones and James Bond for a second. The whole joke one of, of them gets beat up all right. the time in the other one. The one, of, yeah, the other one adjusts his tie as after, things blow up around him. Yeah. After he's been through a massive fist fight. Mm-hmm. One of them falls asleep when the woman throws herself at him. Like he's, right. he's so tired and beaten up that he can't actually claim his sexual reward. One of them has sexual rewards thrown at him on a daily basis <laughs> and enjoys all of them to their fullest. <laughs> and is never somehow too tired or or beat up or put out or... Yeah, or in any way stymied in his sexual content. I mean, yeah, it's the joke. I mean, that is the joke of Indiana Jones. That is the delicious adult irony, if those movies can be said to have any, is Indiana Jones always kind of fails at living up to who James Bond is. 
And then the awesome joke of Last Crusade is that they hired Sean Connery so that Indiana Jones could literally <laughs> fail to live up to who James Bond is. <laughs> yep. I mean, it's really great. Sean Connery in his best role ever. And Sean Connery at his absolute best. That's absolutely right. And we'll have a lot to say about that later. So in the 1930s, you have all these archetypical American outsider males. And you can just see the lineage of it after that. I mean, the searchers we talked about. Uh, Clint Eastwood, I think, is worth talking two seconds about because I think what Clint Eastwood did is remove, stripped away the last pretense that we were actually interested in anything besides that. Like some of those yeah. other guys pay lip service to be to being company men or to doing the right thing. But the fun of the good, the bad, and the ugly is what if this guy really just was in, for, in it for himself and that's it. He just we don't have to bore you with the parts of the plot where we justify why he's doing this. He's just yeah. doing it. He just Let's just cut out all the boring parts. Yeah, let's remove the code. Yeah, exactly. Same thing with Dirty Harry. Dirty Harry is interesting. I guess you could argue that he's part of the system because he works as a cop, but not really. Not in the same way that any of those British heroes were part of the system. Dirty Harry hates the system. What Dirty Harry likes is just shooting bad guys as he sees them, as he defines them. And he just happens to have found a job where he has some kind of an excuse, even though he's always in trouble and his supervisors don't like him. But those movies have so little to do with any kind of real police work, with any kind of real hierarchy within the police department. You know, it's it, Dirty Harry just exists to be the guy in a bar who has a giant gun that he can pull out when random hoodlums run decide in. Decide to harass a waitress. Decide to harass a waitress and... He doesn't feed the part of us that enjoys law and order. He feeds the part of us that is annoyed with people and wishes we could just pull out our wishes giant Wishes we gun. had a license to kill. A, a license to kill. Exactly. So that's kind of who the American hero is. He's, what is he? He's individualistic and he's rebellious. I mean, do you have to say he, he doesn't exist to serve the needs of... In, well, but he does have... He's got a code. Speaking, he does have a code. Mm-hmm. And he's going to, his principal heroic trait is that he never gives up. Yeah, that's absolutely right. He never says die. Mm-hmm. Goonies never say die, man. Yeah. And neither does Indiana Jones and neither do any of these heroes. They don't stop coming. And we'll see that one trait. We'll trace that. That trait is not going away. No. That trait is going to be the thing that sticks, I predict, all the way through the very end of our superhero's journey. Mm-hmm. If there's one constant, it's that the real heroism is, it doesn't matter how many times you fall, you get back up and you keep coming. Yeah. That's we're, that's that's the superpower. Yeah, we're gonna meet characters that are cowards even, like Guardians of the Galaxy guy. We're gonna meet, we're gonna meet characters that vary a lot in the ways that they approach, in their approaches to heroism. And we're gonna see the way that people enjoy watching heroism change a lot in these movies. But yeah, I think that that is, I think there's two things you're going to see. Number one, they all exist somehow outside the system. Yep. The system is bad. The system is bad. They're outsiders. And number two, they don't give up. And they more or less have some kind of code and we'll watch and we'll, we'll get to the bottom of what those codes are and how they change. Yeah. And that's going to be really interesting because I don't think that the change has been for the better. Yeah, this is not the the code of Arthurian knights. No, it's it's sure not. Uh, it's it's one of the sick jokes about the Last Crusade. Whatever else Indiana Jones is, 
he doesn't really belong in the lineage of Sir Galahad. I don't think. Yeah. Uh, Sir Galahad, for one thing, was the Virgin Knight, and Indiana Jones certainly wasn't that. As that movie was at pains to remind yeah. us awkwardly over and over again. Yep. So okay, why are Americans like this? Well, I don't know. John Locke, you know, like French Revolution, the French Revolution, American Revolution, American Revolution. Like we actually, it's aiming of the Wild West. It does have to do with. Our political philosophy, I think, all men are created equal and have certain inalienable rights. You know, that comes out of a real philosophy. You can read John Locke if you didn't have the joy of doing that in high school and, and see him lay out a political moral philosophy for individual happiness. And America is the first semi-successful nation. Real experiment. Real experiment in that. And it does, you know, philosophies matter, ideas matter. It defines our character. It makes us who we are. And our art exists to propagate certain things about that. I don't want to sound all Marxist about it or anything like that, like as if the only art we can make is art that has systemic biases. But without being too Marxist about it, of course, art has systemic biases. And of course, it exists to propagate certain values. And of course, those values align with the values of the people that make the art. Yeah, and one way or another, it's going to be ref- reflective of your God. Yeah. And your politics are going to be in line with your God. And when your God and your politics become one, that's called statism. Mm-hmm. And-, and and who is the American God? I would argue the American God is, insofar as we believe he exists, he is, he exists in a deistic system where he's kind of hands off and what he wants is for us to be happy. Yep. Basically, you know, that's not how the Greeks thought about that. It's not, that's not Odysseus's God. And that affects Odysseus's brand of heroism or Achilles brand of heroism. Not hands off and not benevolent. Not be- hands off, not benevolent. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if anything, hands on and malevolent. That's right. Um, or at, le- at the very least capricious. Right. The other thing that you have to understand as you trace this lineage is you, I don't think you can overstate the importance of the mythology of the Old West. As I did some research for this, what I realized is that it's something that I never ever really knew until researching this. The mythology of the Old West, like when would you say, Jake, off the top of your head, the Old West began to be mythologized? I almost want to say in real time. That's exactly right. And that's what surprised me. The The first dime store novel, the first novel about Indians versus cowboys and just like all those tropes came out in, it was called Maleska, the Indian wife of the white hunter, and it came out in June 8th, 1860, which for context, that's a I year- I was going to guess the 1860s. That's a year before the Civil War. Yep. Like we're already telling this, this monomyth about our country and about the Wild West that we're taming. We're, we're telling that to ourselves as it happens. Yep. You know, like most of the- Manifest destiny, baby. Yeah. And, and the, like you watch a John Wayne movie or something like that. Those are all set after the civil war. Like, Oh yeah. All the, all the movies are set after the mythology was already pretty well established. And the people that you've heard of people like wild bill uh, Hickok and Buffalo bill Cody, people like that, they were playing to the mythology. They knew the mythology right. and they would sit down with reporters and novel dime store novelists and tell their stories and make them larger than life. And 
appear in rodeos and you know pt barnum had a wild west show and this stuff was all happening in the 1860s 1870s that story the lawless frontier where good quote unquote guys have to make their own destiny and create their own law make their way through the savage the savages you can't get away from that Mm -hmm. make their way through the aboriginal savages and somehow carve out some little space of home for themselves that story's been big business since the 1860s since the 1860s yeah dime novels they were crappy cheap paperback editions you know of popular fiction that began in the mid 1800s like i said malaska the indian wife of the white hunter by ann s stevens came out in june 8th 1860 it has all the tropes cowboys indians all that stuff and it's just by some lady like she's the wife of a printer or something i don't think she knew anything about the wild west she just knew what she knew enough to romanticize it she knew how to romanticize it exaggerate it and make it into a good story. And then you have people like P.T. Barnum, and you have people like Buffalo Bill, who served in the Pony Express, served in the Civil War, was a civilian scout in the Indian Wars, and then made a living by exaggerating his stories and telling them to people and making a big deal out of it. And then he started doing his Wild West show, which had Annie Oakley, you know, yep. sharpshooting and all that stuff. And so I don't, I was trying to think of what we can compare it to. I mean, the obvious comparison right now as we record this, I guess, would maybe be Black Lives Matter, just in, in so far as when big social movements are happening, they need their heroes, they need their vil- villains, and they need their mythology. And you can't really say what's going to stick while it's happening in real time, which is why it's hard to pick a current uh, comparison point. But the point is, they definitely had to mythologize it. By the 20th century, the cowboy had really just become the dominant figure of American manhood. You know, you you go to like a, an antique store and you walk around and you see stuff from the early 20th century. And it's all cowboys and Indians and cigarette yep. cases and cigar boxes and pipe tobacco and wooden Indians and yeah. little toys. And people just ate that stuff up. And you can really trace the lineage from that to Indiana Jones to everything we're going to be talking about directly because the dime store novels became the pulp magazines. The pulp magazines of the early 20th century became radio shows, movie serials, and comic books. I mean, that's just just one-to-one. Like Those things transformed into each other. As the pulp magazines died, comic books took their spot on the newsstands. And then finally... Some fellas like George Lucas and Steven Spielberg were like, hey, we love all that. Let's give it a big budget and some A-list talent and make a a cool big version of it. And, you know, you could say the the James Bond producers and people like that had already been doing it. But um, John Wayne. Or, or John Wayne, sure. I think what's important about Spielberg and Lucas, and I'm sure we'll talk about more of this, is kind of like I was saying about Clint Eastwood. They just cut out all the boring stuff. Mm-hmm. You watch a Humphrey Bogart movie and it's going to have cool action and stuff, but you're always going to have to sit through a plot. And the genius of George Lucas is like, well, I hated all that stuff when I was a kid. I was just there for the big action scene. Like, we have to sit through all this religious mumbo jumbo and Ben Hur just to get to the chariot race. What if we made a movie that was just chariot, chariot races? Race. Yeah, like, that'd be cool. And it was. It was a good idea. Let's not pretend like we're here for anything but the chariot race. It's, it's pretty smart. You do it wrong and you get Rise of Skywalker where it's all chariot race and there's so little substance that it doesn't really feel like a movie or a story, but... What you should have done is made it all pod racing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's the lineage. That's the American hero. Let me talk a little bit about serials because I feel like everyone's always like, 
Indiana Jones, it's just like those old Saturday matinee cereals. But I've never seen a single frame of one of those things. I don't know if you have. I think like maybe uh, if I watched an Indiana Jones documentary, they would show like two seconds of a guy jumping from a horse onto a truck or, you know, some scenes that looked similar. But, you know, we all act like it's this cultural reference point, but it's only because Lucas and Spielberg have brainwashed us and told us it's a cultural reference point for my generation. It's not a cultural reference point at all. No, Indiana Jones is just the thing. It's just the thing. But in the 1930s and 1940s, less successful studios and kind of independent studio, you know, not your 20th Century Fox, but your Republic serials and people like that, they would make these short films and the short films would be quickly, cheaply produced and they'd be about a half an hour to 20 minutes half an hour like i think the first installment would usually be a half an hour and it would set up the hero and the villains and the mission and then after that we'd do maybe 10 to 15 20 minute installments and they would end with literal cliffhangers to be continued to be continued and if you're a kid in the 30s 40s maybe into the 50s you go to the theater for saturday your parents drop you off because we don't have helicopter parents and or they don't drop you off they say get on your stupid bike or pay your two bits to the trolley guy so you can go down and, and you actually spend all day a nickel i think is an, what you needed to pay yeah i don't know where two bits comes from that's probably british right who had probably, bits yeah but you're gonna you you're, to go to the nickelodeon go to the nickelodeon you know get, get some steak and kidney pie you're gonna see at least one animated cartoon you're gonna see a chapter of a serial like we were talking about you might see a newsreel to show you all the current events because it's not like they could just turn on cnn and then you may, might see like two feature films. So it's like a half a day's entertainment and people could kind of wander in and out. And, you know, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, if you're a cool kid, you've already seen the movie. So you just wander in for the serial and watch that and watch your Bugs Bunny cartoon or whatever it is and then leave. So that's what it is. And Spielberg and Lucas really liked that stuff. I mean, the thing to emphasize, I think about it is that it was pretty cheaply produced and pretty transparently uh what's the word like not purient exactly but just trying to grab people's attention like Mm -hmm. we're not making art here you know i the names were things like famously flash gordon conquers the universe which uh influenced another film franchise the phantom creeps the green archer it's just all trashy pulpy you're not watching this for anything besides the thrills that it purports to give you flashy title beautiful ladies, bad, bad guys. And Jungle Adventure was definitely, you know, you had sci-fi stuff, you had detectives, you had a Batman and a Superman serial at one point or another as those characters became popular. But Jungle Adventure is one of those genres that's kind of always been chugging along. I don't know that it's ever been just taken off and had the kind of cultural dominance that the Old West has, but... It's also never really gone away. Yeah, it just... People like those kinds of stories. I mean, Indiana Jones has his lineage. uh, The idea that there are still places in the world mm -hmm. that things are hidden or haven't been uncovered. and Which is maybe the reason we don't have as many of those stories now is because it's actually less easy to believe that that exists in the day of Google Maps. It takes a little work or it takes going to a different planet, which is why so many of the stories, I think, expand into... Yeah, a lot of the jungle adventures are actually... Other planet. Yeah, interplanetary. Interplanetary. But H. Ryder Haggard in the 1850s and 60s wrote something called... He wrote a bunch of novels featuring a character named Alan Quartermain. 
who was a jungle adventurer. The most famous one is called King Solomon's Mines, where he finds, you guessed it, King Solomon's Mines. And it's got a lot of those jungly kind of tropes. And that turned into Tarzan, which turned into different things. Yeah, so it's interesting that they... I think it's just George Lucas's weird, oddball sensibilities and genius that he fixated on that. Mm-hmm. Like, if you were just going to do a pulp story, I think you might actually, at the time, think detective or think superhero. You know, there's there's other genres besides jungle adventure, and arguably more popular and longer la- ones with longer lasting cultural legacy. Mm-hmm. But they did Indiana Jones, and one thing that's fun to see is that. Indiana Jones works. People have tried to do the same kind of things, like tried to draw on those pulp sources pretty explicitly. And it almost always fails. Like in the 90s alone, we had the Rocketeer, we had the Phantom, we had the Shadow. We had like a bunch of direct Mm. pulp things. It doesn't usually work. I don't know why, uh, but maybe you could talk about why each of those individual things fails or didn't quite catch on. But Or we could just talk about Amblin magic. Yeah, I think Amblin just knew how to do it and what's smart is i think all those properties to one degree or another rely on you to love old pulp magazines and stuff indiana jones it doesn't matter doesn't he doesn't care he does not he well he's just not that lazy he he does not care what you bring to it he loves it and his goal isn't to trust that you love it as much as him his goal is to make you love it like he loves it yeah, it's, it's what we always complain about about jj abrams he's making a star wars movie that draws so much on the assumption that you like Star Wars. And what he should actually be doing is just making a good Star Wars movie. And that's what Spielberg does. He's not making a movie where you have to love pulp adventures or get all the references. He's just making him he's just making the ultimate pulp adventure. So I guess we should maybe talk real quick about how Indiana Jones fits in everything we've been saying. I mean he is kind of, I guess you could argue, an insider because he works for the American government. The American government, kind of. But it's interesting that they didn't actually make him a real... In- like, he could have had the might of American military behind him. James Bond certainly has the might of the British crown behind him. Indiana Jones exists in a nebulous space at best with the authority figures. They're going to take the Ark away from him and box it up. They don't trust him. Well, he was intense on that Ark going to the museum, man. Yeah, he wants it to go to the museum. You don't really know exactly what his relationship is with the museum, besides that his well, daughter Marcus Brody represents the museum that funds his adventures. Right. And Marcus Brody is kind of cool, I guess, in Raiders by Crusade. He's just a flow, full-blown buffoon. Buffoon. No, he's cool in Raiders. Yeah. yeah. He's a little bit of the the Q or the exactly. M or whatever of Raiders. Yeah. But the fact is, Indiana Jones is going off on himself. He's not being equipped with gadgets. All he's got is his wits and his whip and his gun and his own sense of what's right and wrong. Yep, and his expertise. And his expertise. He's got some friends, but at least as this, as it seems to have been originally conceived and as it plays out in the first two movies, he's got different sets of friends and he's going to have- different a, places. And he's, of course, going to have a different woman. It doesn't yep. matter how successful the pairing of Harrison Ford and Karen Allen was, we're not bringing her back because the whole idea is that this guy doesn't get tied down. He's having a different adventure. Yep. Every time. And you can see Temple of Doom really self- bending over backwards, making itself a prequel, putting the short round character in, who's just a completely different type of helper for Indiana Jones, not bringing Sola back. Like, mm-hmm. they just want to make it like 
well, in one sense, anywhere Indiana Jones goes, he's got friends. But in another sense, he doesn't actually have any friends. Like He's on his own. He's on his own. He's just trying to do what's right. And there's nobody that's really fighting with them. You're not going to bring in the army at the end. Like a lot of those old Sean Connery, James Bond movies end with the British army, you know, actually coming in on like jet packs or something. And they all invade the villains lair together. And it's yay. Indiana Jones is never going to have anything like that. Although I guess you could argue he kind of does in uh, Temple of Doom because the colonial guys are up on the cliff shooting down the bad guys. But it's only after Indiana Jones has thoroughly taken care of all the major problems and single-handedly freed the children from being slaves, slaves, the child slaves. Yeah, I think that's it. I mean, we're going to talk about how all of these heroes interact with conventional morality. I think it's... Yeah, but the best way to do all of that is to actually go through yeah. the movies in depth. So I think we've provided enough context. Yeah, that's the context. We'll be back with Raiders of the Lost Ark. I, I guess the only other thing I'll say is maybe I didn't touch on enough. If you think about all those guys, Philip Marlowe, Superman, John Wayne, Batman, Rick Blaine, they all have uneasy relationships with conventional morality. It's not just that they're outside the system being good. It's that they are willing to bend or break certain rules and they a man's got to have a code and they all have their own code. And we as a watcher of those individual films or reader of those comic books or books are supposed to usually agree with their code. But we're going to watch how each one of our heroes kind of plays with what's right and what's wrong. It's not a given that they'll all believe in the same things or be for the same things or have the same feelings about who to kill when, Mm -hmm. which is kind of an important question for an action hero. Jake, anything, any other thoughts about any of this? I don't think so. I'm ready to get into Raiders. Yeah, me too. I'm excited about it. And I guess we'll have some more context about Steven Spielberg and George Lucas himself, but we can save that until we get to the actual thing. So We'll be back. Sanity at the Movies, produced by me, executive produced by Jake. Go to patreon.com forward slash sanity at the movies. We've got a lot of stuff inside the magical Patreon world of bonus content there. We've got many episodes of us talking about Clone Wars, the animated show, which is its own interesting take on morality and heroism and being inside the system, but also outside the system, but also inside, but maybe ultimately outside. All kinds of cool stuff behind the paywall. So you should go there. Until next time, I don't believe in surrenders. Surrender.